Hello listeners, Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we are working on a new program geared towards transitioning from academia to industry. Powered by Dr. GPCR, our new program is called the Life Career Job. The goal is to support you in your efforts to find your next job in industry, plan out your career trajectory, create a life and support the lifestyle that works for you. If you'd like to be notified when this program becomes available, fill out our short survey on drgpcr.com career. We are also launching our GPCR consulting services. Soon you'll be able to find the profiles of our carefully selected consultants on our website at drgpcr.com consulting. You'll be able to find the help you need for your company. Stay tuned. The second edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit will be held between September 13th and 19th, 2021. We're planning a combination of live talks, pre-recorded talks, and live workshops. Visit drgpcr.com summit for more information. Are you subscribed to our YouTube channel? If not, please subscribe today. It's not only a great way to catch up on our recorded events, such as the Dr. GPCR Virtual Cafe, but it's also a great way to support us here at Dr. GPCR. All right, let's dive into our episode now. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR. I am delighted today to have with me Dr. Randy Hall. He is a professor of pharmacology and chemical biology in the Emory University School of Medicine. Uh, hi, Randy. It's really great to have you hey. here. Hey, Yamina. It's, it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. I'm, I'm glad that we finally got to do this. And uh, as a first disclosure to the audience, uh, we, we e- met by email a couple of months back when we corresponded about a book you've been working on. Can you tell us about the book that you've been working on? Yeah, so uh, as you know, I was a a postdoc in the Lefkowitz lab uh, in the 1990s. Uh, And um, at that time, you know, I was just, uh, I realized early on that, you know, Bob is one of the all-time great raconteurs. (laughs) He's he's an inveterate storyteller. And I was, you know, uh, entertained and inspired on a daily basis, uh, you know, while, while working in the lab when Bob would just hold court and tell stories. And so I, I thought even at that time that uh, Bob's stories would, would make for a great book. You know, back in the 1980s when I was in college, uh, I read a book called Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. It's, it's the, the memoir of uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, Richard Feynman. Uh, and uh, I was very inspired by that book, really, really to consider a career in research, even though Feynman was in physics and I wanted to go into biology, I still found that book incredibly inspiring. And when I joined Bob's lab, you know, I, I kind of realized that Bob is like the Feynman of biology, you know, because basically, you know, they, uh, they're both Nobel Prize winning giants in their field and they're both like Jewish guys from New York City and they're both amazing storytellers. Uh, and so, so I really had thought at that time, and even when I was in Bob's lab, that Bob's stories and his life and his, 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 all his adventures would make a great book. And sometimes shortly after I left the lab in the early 2000s, I was hanging out with Bob at a meeting and had suggested the idea of doing a book that, that was like the Feynman book. Because Feynman's book was actually co-written with a junior colleague of his named, named Ralph Layton. Uh, you know, Feynman told uh, Ralph Layton all the stories and Layton wrote them up. And so I, I proposed to Bob that we could have a you know, sort of a similar uh, model and a similar working relationship where he, he would tell me his stories and I, I would help him to, to write the book. Uh, but at, at that time in the early 2000s, he had like no interest at all <laughs> in this project, like like zero interest. He was, was so focused on running his laboratory and doing his thing just was was not, you know, uh, you know, on his mind at all to do a book like that. Uh, and then I guess after he won the Nobel Prize in 2012, I had said we were at a meeting together the next year, I think it's 2013. I, I suggested again this, this idea of the book project. And Bob said, Well, you know, I just having just won the prize, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I have so many invitations and things are just so crazy right now. There's just, just, just no way that I could think about it uh, right now. So, but then fast forward to January of 2019. So now this is like a, like a couple of years ago. Uh, and, I, and I visited Duke uh, that month um, to, you know, catch up on what's going on in, in the Lefkowitz lab, visit with other friends at Duke, um, hang out with Bob, go to, to, very importantly, go to a Duke basketball game together because both, both Bob and I are, are, are big Duke basketball fans. And so when we were at dinner before the, the game, I raised the idea of the book project again. Uh, and this, this time, Bob was more receptive. He thought, you know, you know I'm, I'm kind of, you know, getting later in my career and, Maybe this would be the right time to write a memoir. And we suggested we talk, talked about like 
how it might happen. And I suggested that we could just start talking on the phone for like an hour a week. Uh, he could tell me his stories and I could write them up um, and send them to him to, to be edited. Uh, so, so we began doing that starting in early 2019. And then we basically wrote the book all through 2019 and then uh, worked on editing it last year after we got a publisher. Yeah. Uh, that was like, like during the pandemic, we were taking, taking some time, some time to, to, to edit the book and get it in shape. And it was just published uh, in February of 2021, uh, so just a couple months ago. Uh, and um, the reception has has been fantastic. So it's been you know it's been it's been really wonderful to see. Like we've got some great reviews and like Nature and uh, New York Times and other outlets. Um, and then also just random people will write to me and Bob and say how much they love the book and how how inspired they feel and then they. Uh, so it's been, it's been really wonderful to to see the reception that the, the book has received. It's it's a great book. And as you know, and the audience knows as well, I sat down in December to chat with Bob about the book. And he's an amazing storyteller. And I was so excited to not only read the book, but I have to disclose this. I did get an autographed copy of the book, which is um, it's, it's sitting on a shelf with the Terry Kanakin's autographed <laughs> uh, primer to pharmacology book. And I, I loved I loved reading it. I love chatting with Bob. And yes, he does have many many stories. Um, it's 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 kind of rare. It's not that um, obvious that people sit down and write books. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the the one hour chat that you had with Bob? How did you decide which stories would go into the book, which won't, and how did you go about once you had that draft about finding a, a publisher? Well, that was definitely the hardest part of the process was determining, you know, what stories would go in and what stories would stay out because Bob has so many stories. Uh, and, <laughs> and each week when I would write up a chapter based on our conversation and send it to Bob, he would immediately reply and say, well, well, what about this story? Well, what about that story? Like all the things on the cutting room floor, he'd be a little bit agitated that, <laughs> that this or that story got dropped. And I, and I had to remind him and say, Bob, if I included every story you told me, this book would be 3,000 pages long. <laughs> you know, you know the, the publisher wants 300 pages, not 3,000 pages. And so uh, a lot of stories had to be dropped and, and that triage process was really the, the only difficult part uh, of writing. Uh, but yeah, after, after we had, had written a draft, we got an agent, uh, Jim Levine at LGR, and he's a very experienced agent and he, he helped us to, to pitch the book around to uh, several dozen publishers. Um, and a, a lot of the, the, the publishers replied and said like, oh, we love this book. Like we, we think there should be, should be more science books out there in this guy left has had this amazing life. His stories are incredible. We, like we've, we, we love the book, but you know, there isn't that big of a market for, you know, for science books and certainly science memoirs. There's not that many in the past and last decade or two that have sold that well. And so, so there was like a lot of like reticence on the part of the publishers um, to, to, to go in, even though they expressed a, a lot of enthusiasm for it. Um, but then fortunately, uh, Jessica Case at, at Pegasus Publishing, she's a real, you know, excellent editor there and they're kind of a, a medium sized publisher. And she was very enthusiastic about the book, like right out of the gate and just loved it and made an offer on it. Uh, and so, um, so we, we just went with her because she was so, so enthusiastic and seemed like such a highly regarded editor. We were very, very pleased to work with her and it, worked, it turned out to be a very good uh, working relationship. That's great. Yeah, I corresponded very briefly uh, with Jessica as well while we were setting up the podcast with with Bob. And I think, yeah, she seems like a really, really good. She, she's great. She's great. I loved my email exchanges with her. So do you think there is space to write another 300 page book? <laughs> well, Bob has already, <laughs> given the reception that the book has received, uh, Bob has already been talking about writing a sequel. You know, the, the, <laughs> there were several books uh, by Feynman uh, and, and Ralph Layton, because after Surely a Joking was a, was a bestseller, then the, they, they did several others. They, they also had uh, stories on the, on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. So there were several other books, uh, one that was called uh, What Do You Care What Other People Think? And then there was, other, I think, even one after that. And, and there were also like relative uh, bestsellers. And so, so it, it is, you know, it, it is possible something that we could think about, um, but that we definitely have, definitely have material um, for, for. <laughs> that, that's why <laughs> for, I figured for the books. Uh, when I yeah. started chatting with Bob on the podcast, you know, him and I were trying to figure out, okay, how long should the podcast be? How should we go about it? And then I remember that we went way beyond the time that we had agreed yes. on in the beginning because, and I feel, I felt like there was more to talk about more stories <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that, the uh, the audience and everyone who's read the book would love to have a sequel and uh, learn more about you know hear more about Bob's stories. Mm -hmm. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, you definitely know uh, more than anyone uh, how many stories Bob has and how he <laughs> can just just keep talking. The way when you're talking to Bob, there's never like a uh, a pause in the conversation or a, you know quiet moments when you that are like awkward because you know because Bob will just keep talking and he's he's such a great conversationalist always has some something interesting to say and so so you certainly had that experience because it ended up being like a like a two hour plus podcast yes it it did right. and I think it's the Actually, Ned, I think I know it's the most listened to podcast episode ever that we did mm-hmm. here in Dr. GPCR with over, mm-hmm. at this yeah, point, right. over 600 plays. So at least 600 people listen to it or, you know, m- multiple yeah. people listen to it 600 times, which is right. which is fantastic. And it's, yes, you're right. I think mm-hmm. uh, being able, Bob has this naturally, he's naturally outgoing and he has a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. What I really loved about our conversation with Bob is that he was... Uh, he had great stories to tell, but he was honest. You could tell that mm-hmm. Bob is direct. He'll tell you. I loved how he um, he told you know the the stories about the discoveries that he made, mm-hmm. the people he worked with, but uh, also how he was honest about his uh, his time in the lab versus his time commitments at home. Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely. I thought he you know he was a great subject to work with on a memoir because he's very emotionally open. Yeah. I thought our sessions were all, sometimes almost like therapy, you know, where he's just being totally open about so many of, of his emotions from you know, things that happened in the past. And that's great because I think that's the, that's the first and most important secret for writing a memoir is that you have to be honest, you know, that, that it's not just enough to be, to be interesting or tell, tell the stories that you want people to know. You need, need to tell, like be totally open and tell all the stories from your life and just be honest about things. That, that to me is what makes a great memoir because it packs the, some emotional punch. You, you can tell when someone's being honest in a memoir versus when someone's like holding back and trying to make themselves look good all the time, you know, but, but, but none of us are perfect. None of us are, you know, uh, you know, uh, are, are, are flawless. And we all have things in our past that maybe, you know, we're not always so, so proud of. And so yeah, it's always great that, that Bob was very, you know, very uh, open and open about it, about everything uh, from his past. And I, I think that's part of what makes it, makes it a great book. I think so too. I think so too. And that's also what made the podcast episode a really great podcast episode. First of all, it was Bob. You know, mm-hmm. me when I I have to I have to say this when I first received the email to to talk about the podcast opportunity with Bob, and look at the book. I was, it's interesting because I started the podcast in the beginning of 2020, and to to get to a point where mm-hmm. at the end of that same year when I started a project just to see if it would work out and it made me happy mm-hmm. talking to people. Mm-hmm. Closing up the year with a discussion with Bob Lefkowitz himself, it was just such a great mm-hmm. honor. Mm-hmm. It was a lovely, lovely experience. Well, I, I know he enjoyed it, and it certainly turned into a, a, a really good and really long uh, podcast. <laughs> so yes, yes. But every, every minute of it is great. So. I, I thought so, too. And um, it's a, kind of a spoiler alert, but I'm working with you right now and, and with Bob to get a series of interviews about right. Bob and mm-hmm. that's all I'm going to say but we're working on it and hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to um, move forward with that project and get that project out to the audience I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure everyone would love to hear more about who Bob is as a person and who Bob how Bob evolved from being mm-hmm. the the junior professor to the Nobel laureate and well way beyond mm-hmm. super super uh, I'm super excited to see if there will be a sequel. I think I think there are enough stories to write two more books. <laughs> and how did you come up with the title? That's one thing I wanted to ask. Yeah, so the title is uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm. Uh, and um, that is sort of a play on the uh, Stephen Sondheim uh, play uh, that's called uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum that was very popular on Broadway in like the late 50s and early 60s when Bob was growing up. And it was later made into like a, a very popular movie. Uh, and so, and so I, th- I think that, that since that title was uh, something that Bob was familiar with for, from his youth, then he, uh, after uh, he won the Nobel Prize, he was invited by some student groups and other groups sometimes to, to give talks um, about like, you know, what it's like to win a Nobel Prize, what it's like to go to Stockholm and all, all, the, all, the, all the hoopla and all the, all the, all the, all the uh, grandeur that, that are associated with, with that ceremony, uh, and then of course all the sort of the, the crazy things that happen when you, it's, it, you know winning a Nobel Prize is you achieve like a slightly higher level of celebrity um, than like a normal scientist, right? Because already even before the prize, of course he's very well known in the TPCR field and the science world in general. 
But then after you win a Nobel Prize, you sort of now you begin hanging out at meetings with like Sting and Peter Gabriel and stuff. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of like a different level of celebrity. And so there's some interesting stories there that, that, he, that he would tell like, like to the student groups. Uh, and, so it's, and so we captured that also in the, in the book, of course. And so, so the, that's, that's was the genesis of the, of the, of the, the title of the book. Was that, that was also a title he would use for his talks when he would talk to student groups. The, the title of his talks would be a funny thing happened on, on the way to Stockholm where he'd just tell his funny stories about, you know, around and after the, the Nobel Prize. Yes, before, I think uh, he was supposed to give a talk. I was back then a postdoc at Rockefeller University and... He was supposed to give a talk on a Friday afternoon at Rockefeller on the same week. Uh, the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Committee made the announcement and obviously it got postponed and we had to wait an entire year for Bob to come back and actually give give his talk. And I remember the year after I was still there and after giving his talk, we went down to um, to the university um, hangout place of the faculty faculty I can see it's been a while since I was at, at Rockefeller but it's kind of this this bar with on the campus and we were sitting around Bob and there were plenty of students postdocs PhD students and he was telling his, his stories and someone from the the committee who was with him had to get him out of there because they were going to dinner but I'm pretty sure that if no one would have come to get him we were be uh, we would have spent the evening listening to Bob's stories absolutely <laughs> Do you have an idea on what the next book's title might be? No, I've not discussed it. I've not discussed it. Uh, I feel like it's uh, it's it's going to be a difficult a difficult book to to come up with a title with unless unless once you have the the material put back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, the, that's the more natural way is to write first and try to come up with a title later. Just like we do for scientific papers, right? It usually you, you do all the work first and then Right when you're about to submit it, you spend a lot of time thinking about the title. So it's, I think it's the same for, for a lot of books. Agreed. Agreed on. So you said you mentioned that you were a postdoc in Bob's lab. Can you tell us a little bit about your story as a scientist? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I guess, you know, I, I grew up um, uh, going on a lot of nature walks with my father and watching a lot of nature shows on TV. I was really into all the all the animal shows. So I was interested from a very young age, you know, in biology. Uh, but then I think as I got on and through junior high and high school, I realized that I was more interested in sort of like the mechanisms of how things work rather than just like, you know, watching wildlife per se. And so in, in college, I, I began working in, in a research laboratory. This guy, uh, I was at the University of New Hampshire. And I worked with a guy there, there named Rick Cody, who w- we were studying like, like visual s- signaling um, and uh, the, like photoreceptors cyclic GMP levels and like how there's like different compartments of cyclic GMP. Like it's not just that cyclic, cyclic GMP goes high or low, but it's, it's, there's different compartments of it. It's high in some places, low in others. And so I just found this so fascinating. Uh, and so then in, in grad school, um, I, I, I went to UC Irvine uh, in the neuro, neurobiology program there. And I worked with a guy named Gary Lynch uh, and we studied glutamate receptors, like, like the, but the, the ion channel length receptors, like the AMPA receptor and the NMDA receptor. Um, and so that was my first exposure to working on receptors and which, uh, an area that I found fascinating because it's like you're, you're studying like the, that's like the first point of communication between cells. Like that, that's how cells communicate, right? This one cell releases something, the other cell binds it by, by, a, by a receptor. And so I just, I was so drawn in and, and captivated by that area. But then uh, for, my, for my first post, like I wanted to kind of stay in that area. And so I, I, I worked, I, I went to the Ballon Institute in Portland, Oregon, and, and I worked with a guy there named uh, Tom Soderling, who uh, was studying uh, the regulation of AMPA receptors and NMDA receptors by, by phosphorylation. So that I began doing a lot, a lot of phosphorylation studies there and regulation. But then uh, like after a year or two, I realized that maybe my, uh, my postdoctoral work was a little too close to what I was doing as a grad student. You know, and I think that that's a common mistake that uh, a lot of students make is, you know, if you're working in a hot area as a grad student, you think, well, Maybe I should kind of stay in this field, right? Because because it's like it, things are hot, and I and I know the literature in this area. So you, you do a postdoc that's kind of very closely related, but then that isn't ideal for your development as a scholar, you know. Because if you're going to like become a faculty member and show your breadth as a scholar, you know, you kind of need to work on a few different diverse areas, not just one narrow field. Um, and so I decided that what I wanted to do was still work on receptors because th- th- that that obviously is a very broad area. But, I, but that I should do a second postdoc and work on like a different type of receptor. And so then I just chose to work on GPCRs because, of course, this is the, you know, the biggest family of cell service receptors. 
and I wrote to Bob Lefkowitz, and you know, who of course was a leader in the, in the field at that time, as he is now. But at that time, his lab had just cloned, you know, the, the adrenergic receptors and a bunch of other GPCRs. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was definitely a hot lab to go to. Unfortunately, Bob had a spot for me, so I, I went to the Lefkowitz lab in the in the nineties. Um, and, you know, I think that that moment when you, as a scientist, when you when you change subfields, that often is a very exciting and fertile time for discovery. Uh, and, and my career was certainly an example of that because uh, having worked on like the NMDA receptors. The big discovery in that subfield at that time was that, uh, you know, the, the C-terminus of NMDA receptors, right, has a very specific motif that binds to these uh, scaffold proteins are called, called PDZ scaffolds, like, like PSD95, that the post density protein and 95 kill dolls. And this is very important for like anchoring of the NMDA receptor at synapses and the way it regulates synapses. Um, and so that was a, that was a brand new discovery right at the time that I was that I was moving to Bob's lab. So I, I was think, thinking along these lines, and, I, and when I joined Bob's lab, I looked at the sequences of the then the the recently cloned you know beta adrenergic receptors, and saw that basically all, all of them had these you know similar motifs that were similar to the, the NMDA receptor. And I thought you know that, that definitely some there could be interesting interesting proteins, scaffold proteins, regulatory proteins, signaling proteins binding to the C termini of these receptors. And so I asked Bob and I asked other folks in the lab, I said, you know, what is known about the importance of the, of the C-termini of the, you know, beta adrenergic receptors? And, the, and Bob and the others in the lab, they said, oh, you know, that they, they don't do much. <laughs> you, know, you can, you know, we, we've, we've done studies, you can remove them and you still get perfectly fine G-protein coupling. You know, they, they, so they, they, it's really like, you know, especially the distal regions, they're really not, not doing too much. In fact, at that time, the Lefkowitz lab uh, was working on trying to get the first crystal structure right, of a beta of, of, of a GPCR and working on the beta two receptor. And they were just they were just removing the whole C terminus <laughs> because like who needs it? Just get this out of here. That they were focused only on the seven TM region uh, to 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 get the first crystal structure. And so the, that was how how lowly regarded the C terminus was. <laughs> so they were just throwing it in the trash. Like don't don't even need it to get a, to, to look at the crystal structure. And so and so I thought you know. Maybe this is actually a, a ripe area for investigation. If everyone in the field believes that the C-terminus of GPCRs doesn't, doesn't do anything, then I, I decided to look for proteins that, uh, that, that bind to the C-terminus of the beta adrenergic receptors and, and other receptors. Um, and so I, I did took proteomic approaches, yeast to hybrid approaches, and which was, was zoomed in on trying to, trying to find things that bind to C-terminus. And I, we, found, we found a bunch of interesting proteins that bind to the beta-1 subtype, different proteins that bind to the beta-2 subtype, different scaffolds that bind to other GPCRs um, that were otherwise pretty closely related. And so, and so that was a very exciting, you know, kind of breakthrough in, in, the, in the late 90s because it led to a lot of insights. For example, there was a lot of literature at that time about like uh, differences in functionality between beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. You know, like yeah, yeah, beta-1 and beta-2 could be expressed in together like in cardiomyocytes, yeah. right? And, and they, couple, they couple to the same G protein and they both bind beta arrestins, but yet they have radically different effects on cell physiology, <laughs> right? So people say, how can this be if they, these two, these two related subtypes that they, if they couple to the same G protein and both bind arrestins, like how are they having such, such differential effects on cell physiology? And so, but then if you realize, oh, via, via their <laughs> the C-terminus, C-terminus they, they bind to other proteins that are, are very distinct, then that begins to explain how they can have differential effects on cell physiology. And so, and, and, and so, so, so that was basically my, my body of work from the Lefkowitz lab was focused on that, trying to study those, inter- those novel interactions and, um, and to elucidate that, how it explains the differences in subtype functionality between different adrenergic receptors. And how did the world react to, to your discovery that actually the C-terminal uh, tail of GPCRs is actually very important? Yeah, well, it, there was, a, I think, uh, a lot of skepticism at first of some of, some of our data. That's normal. Really. I was sure that at Gordon conferences and you get a lot of pushback from people like the, the Al Gilmans of the world <laughs> come by and ask tough questions and they're a little skeptical about this, you know. But then, then I think, you know, our, our, ultimately our data was convincing. I, I had a paper published in Nature. I had some other big papers in, J, in JBC and PNAS. Um, and ultimately you begin to get acceptance. And then, all, of course, the ultimate praise is when other labs begin jumping in in doing similar studies on not only on the adrenergic, but on, on all other subfamilies of GPCR. So, so certainly by the time I, I became faculty at Emory in the early 2000s, there was so many dozens and dozens of labs that were now studying proteins binding to the C-terminus of GPCRs and showing the functional importance of, of those interactions. 
And so just a couple of years earlier, it had been very like avant-garde, but then <laughs> by, by the mid 2000s, it was like very like uh, just commonplace, like run of the mill, like, like so many labs were working in, in, in that area. I love hearing these, these types of stories because um, when, when I started working on GPCRs, this was already known. So to me thinking that actually there was a period of in time where no one knew or no one cared about the C-terminus of, of GPCRs and they thought, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we can just remove it. Yeah, it's just absolutely. <laughs> it's just an interesting realization knowing that, you know, there there is actually people who didn't even know what a receptor looked like in the beginning. Mm -hmm. They knew the concept of it, mm -hmm. but there was no real description and just cloning it was a big advance in the field. Yeah. And of course, in, in the Lefkowitz memoir, we go back even further to like the, the late 60s, early 70s, when people were skeptical that receptors even existed. <laughs> so that's taking it to a whole other level. <laughs> to, to me, that, that was obviously before my time. And so I, I really enjoyed hearing those stories from Bob about, about the, the pushback that he received because he, his idea was, uh, I want to purify receptors and study their properties. I, and then you had, you had major leaders in the field saying, that's stupid, Bob. It, it doesn't even make any sense because receptors are just a theoretical construct. They just they don't really exist as physical entities, but they're just like a, a pattern of forces in the membrane. You know, a, dr a drug binds and to this pattern of forces and causes a change, but there's not a physical thing <laughs> that's like a receptor. And so, that, so obviously, we've come a long way in the last uh, uh, 50 or 60 years. We have, definitely. And then, uh, so after your postdoc, your second postdoc in, in Bob's lab, you uh, ended up at uh, as a faculty at Emory University. Mm -hmm. um, what does your lab work on exactly? Yeah, so over the years, we've worked on a lot of different uh, uh, subfamilies of GPCRs. We, so my initial studies were focused on uh, applying the idea of like, you know, regulation by the C-terminus, you know, to, to other uh, subfamilies. We worked on atabotropic glutamate receptors, GABA-B receptors, purinergic receptors, a bunch of other, other subtypes. In more recent years, as, as I said, that, that, those, that kind of work became, you know, very like standard and, and run of the mill by like say 2010. So then, now we've kind of moved into studying more a number of orphan receptors. And especially we've moved into studying the, the adhesion uh, subfamily of GPCRs, which I think is a really, really fascinating family. I think so too. And you had mentioned uh, that you kind of always worked in the realm of the receptor family. Mm -hmm. When was that first time when we, you were exposed to the concept or to the existence of receptors? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the work I did as an undergrad was kind of GPCR adjacent <laughs> because I was working on like cyclic GMP levels and photoreceptors. So that's similar, but not exactly on receptors. Um, but then, you know, in, in grad school, working on, on the AMPA and NMDA receptors, that's when I first began to fall in love with the idea of studying the, the initial events of cell signaling. Um, and just find it, you know, it's it's very um, uh, simple in some respects because it's like the first event. You know, you're not necessarily look, look, looking at all, the, all these complicated downstream uh, signaling pathways where you can have so many pathways that have all this crosstalk. So when you're looking at just the initial events that kick off signaling, there's something simple uh, and appealing about about that for me. Um, but the, but but obviously it's not too simple because now now we have. Concepts like biased agonism and, you know, not, not every uh, agonist or drug can affect the receptor in, in the same way. Um, and, and, and so so to me, it's still, it's still a very exciting and vibrant area. And then throw in their allosteric modulators and then yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you've, you've complicated it more, more mm -hmm. than it was 50 years ago, definitely. Um, so you mentioned, uh, I, I want to get back a little bit into the same same area. So you you worked on NMDA receptors and you were always interested by the concept or the the first contact of a receptor with, with a chemical signal outside the cell. Did you first, how did you pick up the lab that you first worked in? Did you mm -hmm. attend to a class and you got interested in the topic or how did that happen? Yeah, I guess, so before um, I joined the lab of Gary Lynch, I had read some of his papers because I was going to UC Irvine and I had read some of his papers. I think I did one of his papers for, for a journal club when I was under, an undergrad. Um, and so that's kind of how I became very interested, um, you know, in, in the lab's research in, in particular. I wasn't interested so much in receptors at that time as I was interested in like the Lynch lab and, and studying synaptic, synaptic plasticity and the changes that underlie learning and memory and so that that was definitely the genesis of that. But but then in the course of that work, then I can't I, I began to get more interested in receptor biology. Um, but but my first you know 
the impetus for joining the, that lab in grad school was, you know, synaptic plasticity. And, and I think that's, you know, it, it, a lot of students think about like, you know, when they're going to grad school or when they're, they're going for a postdoc, they, they think about like what, you know, what lab should I join, <laughs> right? That's, that's always the, the, the big question. Yeah. And I think that always you just got to like, um, you know, follow your heart and whatever you're, you find yourself being interested in, whatever, if, you know, if, if you do like a journal club and whatever papers you're picking for your journal club, like that kind of shows you what you're being interested in as a scientist. And, and so I think, I think you just, you just kind of go with that. You know, for, for Francis Crick used to, used to, used to call it the gossip test, right? That basically as a scientist, whatever subfields and little, little discoveries you, you find yourself gossiping about, like as you talk to your scientific colleagues, you say, Hey, did you see this paper in nature or did you see this paper in PNAS and blah, 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 blah. And, and, you, and, you, and you just talk, whatever you catches your interest, right? Try to try to realize what, what's catching your interest. Um, and, and then go in that direction because, because, because clearly if, if you're gossiping about it and talking about it, it's, it's, you're, it's something that, that appeals to you. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess in my career, I've always tried to adhere to that, to, to cricks like gossip tests and just kind of go and find, you know, labs and, and mentors and research problems that were interesting to me. Um, and that's, you know, that's sort of, that, that was how I got in, into the lunch lab in grad school. It's interesting. Um, You've given many, many examples on how you went from you know one stage of your career into the next one. And what comes out to me is that you're always going after something gets yet that you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you always picked, or it seems to be that you've been picking problems that you were interested in, but also you didn't care what other people were thinking, whether mm-hmm. it was done before, it wasn't done, or as you mentioned, with the C-terminus mm-hmm. of, of GPCRs. Um, what would you tell students that are interested in mm-hmm. a certain topic that they're unsure about? Because I feel like back, back looking at myself 10, 20 years ago, I was a young student, impressionable, and always kind of following what was what was mm-hmm. the uh, the high of uh, you know the interest of, of that moment. But it took a certain time and maturity and conf- building that confidence to go after topics that I was interested in. Whenever mm-hmm. people were telling me about well, that's like with the Cetermis, that's right. important. Yeah, I think that, you know, my advice to young scientists is to go for subfields um, and research questions where there's some mystery, you know, there's, there's some mysteries to be solved. Don't, don't choose subfields where everything seems neat and, and, and everything's ironed out and things are, are very mature. Because I, I feel like sometimes students are attracted to areas that seem very, like, like literally and, uh, and, and neat, and where, and where things seem like they're things are everything's you know happening in as it should be, uh, but it, but it's better to go for subfields where uh, where the, the seas are rough and <laughs> the sky is the sky is dark and there's a lot of mysteries and, and there's a lot of controversy like, like people do not necessarily agree on things like like those are the subfields where you can make big discoveries because there's obviously a lot that's not known um, and but there's a lot of interest and so uh, I think that that's you know uh, as young scientists are thinking about, you know, labs to choose for, yeah. for grad school, labs to choose for a postdoc. That's good advice is to go head, head for the turmoil, <laughs> you know, go, go, go for subfields that seem like they're in turmoil. Uh, obviously you, you don't want to work on things that, that are too far afield and, and it, like, like, like where the technology doesn't, doesn't exist to actually answer the questions you, you that, that, that you want to answer. And so, so that, so that certainly is, a, there's a real trick to, uh, you know, problem selection, choosing things that are, you know, um, you know, uh, different enough to be interesting, but but not so out there that the technology does, doesn't yet exist to actually address the questions. Yeah, so basically follow 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 your interests, follow your your gut at that point. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned that you're currently you you transitioned uh, to working on adhesion receptors. Are there any specific receptors that you're working on? Can you tell us a little bit more about the projects that are currently? Sure. I mean, I, I just think that it's it's a really interesting uh, subfamily of GPCRs. You know, because it, it's there's like. 33 members of the sub-subfamily um, in humans, and uh, um, they're very exotic receptors. They have huge N-termini extracellularly that you know, can be like thousands of amino acids. Uh, all of them uh, have a, a, a so-called gain domain. That, that's like a GPCR autoproteolysis inducing domain where they cleave themselves, but, but then the two pieces, the N-terminus and the 7TM region, region they still they remain physically associated together. Uh, and, and of course, the reasons for that uh, have long been obscure and are still uh, much debated in terms of what, why you'd have this, these self-cleaving receptors, but that then stay together. 
And in some of our earliest work, so this is al almost a decade ago now, some of our earliest work on these receptors, we were just, you know, because um, the, the, there's a lot of the disease genes in the family, uh, right? The, the, the large number of genetic diseases are caused by mutations to adhesion GPCRs. And so we were interested in one of those examples of, that was GPR56, uh, uh, Shen Piao, who was then at, at Harvard working with Chris Walsh. She had showed that uh, GPR56 mutations cause a, a, an interesting neurological disorder. And so, but of course, at that time, nothing was known about, about how that receptor functioned or even if it, if it could couple to G proteins, right? <laughs> so very basic questions like, does this, does this thing even signal, like, is it actually a GPCR? It looks like a GPCR, but is it actually a GPCR? So we were addressing like very fundamental questions like that. And some of our earliest studies were expressing uh, GPR56 like in, in uh, HEC293 cells. And we could see that it had some activity. It was coupling to uh, G12 and G13 to, to activate Rho. So that, that was the first evidence that it actually was, you know, actually was a, a GPCR. Um, but then we noted that since it had some level of constitutive activity, we speculated that maybe there was like a ligand that was present in HEC293 cells or also maybe in COS cells, because we do it also in some work in COS cells. But these cells might express, might express an endogenous ligand that was binding to the large end terminus of GPR56 and activating it. And so, so according to that hypothesis, if you remove that large end terminus, that should create a dead receptor, right? That, that wouldn't signal. And so uh, we, we created a, a truncated version of GPR56 that was missing the end terminus, missing the, that, that was right up to, to, to the cleavage point. But then rather than causing that to be a dead receptor, we actually found that that massively increased the consensus of signaling by GPR56. And we found identical data for another member of the family, BAI1, BAI1, that's the brain angiogenesis inhibitor 1, which showed that a protein that, that that receptor is found at synapses and also showed that it also couples to, to G12 and G13. Um, and also showed that when you remove the end terminus, you get a huge increase um, in signaling, right? And right. as you well know, you mean, as because you're an expert in this field, for most GPCRs, if you remove the end terminus, you do not, do not massively increase signaling. You <laughs> right? shouldn't, at least. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's not normal activity for, for a GPCR. Uh, and so we are very interested in this. And, and of course, the, the, that also is like a general point, right, uh, in, in, to, to point out for, to, for students in research that whenever you find and the opposite of what you're expecting, that, that usually that's a very exciting discovery, right? So it's, 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 sometimes people get nervous about that. <laughs> if we, if we, you make a discovery that's, that's the opposite of, of what you were hoping for or, or like looking for. But in this, in this case, we thought it was very interesting because it, it suggested a mechanism for activating uh, the adhesion GPCR. So, so we published some, some papers in 2011, 2013, in, a, in some since that time, basically showing that this is quite general for a number of adhesion GPCRs and, and, and of course other labs have have uh, jumped into and shown this for other adhesion GPCRs that when you remove the end terminus, uh, that you, you get this, this large increase in the signaling activity. Uh, and so we had proposed, even from the first paper, on, it, was, it was in 2011, we had proposed that this could be a general, general mechanism of activation for the whole family, that basically you get engagement of this large end terminus by some kind of ligand, and then, and then maybe it gets either confirmationally changed or pulled off and removed. And then that's sort of like pulling the pin out of a grenade and that, that activates the receptor. Um, and, and, and then so that prediction made almost 10 years ago now has largely been borne out over the past decade because, like I say, many, many labs studying many of the different adhesion GPCRs have shown that invariably when you remove the N-terminus, right, you, you get a large increase in signaling activity. And then, of course, there's been further work on the mechanism by which that happens. So like, you know, uh, Ines Liebscher and Torsten Schoenberg in, in Leipzig showed, and, and, and Greg Tall also showed it in, totally independently in, in, in his work uh, in the USA, that, um, that when you remove the N-terminus, you, you unveil a, a sort of a tethered cryptic agonist in, in a way that's sort of like the PAR receptors, right, the proteus activated receptors, that, that you, you know, that like, like a thrombin activating, like cleaving PAR1. In the case of the, of, the, of, of the PARs, right, it's an exogenous protease that does the cleavage to unveil the, the cryptic agonist. But in the case of the adhesion GPCRs, they have their own intrinsic proteolytic activity, um, but, but, but the, the idea is the same, that basically you're unveiling, unveiling a cryptic agonist. Uh, and so, so that, that's been some, it's certainly some exciting adva advances uh, in the past few years on adhesion GPCRs. Um, and, you know, and I think, it, I think they certainly are, represent also great drug, drug targets because they're involved in so many uh, important physiological processes. Many of them have very discrete tissue distributions in the body. That suggests they could be re really good drug targets. Um, and, um, and they're certainly druggable because, you know, like, like Greg Tall's lab has done some screening and found small molecules that, that bind to 
And Houston GP says, I, I should point out that, that there was some skepticism that they could be druggable, right? Because that they have such huge um, extracellular and termini. And you talk to a, a lot of the, the old drug development gurus from back in the day, and they say, oh yeah, these large adhesion proteins, they're terrible drug targets <laughs> because like, like some of the, the integrins and other large adhesive proteins people have tried to drug, but the, 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 um, the interaction interfaces of like a, a lot of adhesion proteins are so large that it's, that it's hard to disrupt or modulate with the small molecules, right? And so, and so a, a, lot, a lot of drug development gurus are kind of in the mindset that like large adhesion proteins, like, like they're, they're not, good, not good drug targets. But of course, the, the thing about adhe adhesion GPCRs, they're not just large adhesion proteins. They're also GPCRs. Exactly. <laughs> right? so, which are like the, the ultimate, you know, perfect drug target yep. that, that, that uh, so many important drugs have been developed against. And so certainly you've seen from the work of Greg Tall and others that you, you know, he screened and found small molecules that bind to uh, different adhesion GPCRs, both agonists and antagonists, that bind into the 7TM region and it can regulate their activity. And then uh, even more recently, so just like a couple months ago, the lab of Jinpan Sung, who's my, my scientific little brother. Right? <laughs> he, was, he was in a Lefkowitz lab in the era just after I was, and now he has his own lab in China. Uh, and he published in Nature, right, that he published, it was the first cryo-EM structure of an adhesion GPCR, that was GPR-97. Uh, and also showed, interestingly, that GPR-97 can bind to certain steroid hormones, like the glucocorticoids, um, that those, those bind to and agonize um, GPR-97. So, of course, that raises the interesting question, like, well, what about other adhesion GPCRs? Do other adhesion GPCRs also have small molecule ligands, uh, maybe, maybe steroid hormone ligands, which is a, a fascinating area because the, there's, as, as you certainly know very well, over the past couple of decades, there's been a huge literature on st steroids activating GPCR pathways, right? Via like largely unknown mechanisms. There is, there is previously one GPCR, GPR30, right? Also known as GPR, which is the, the G protein couple with receptor activated by estrogen uh, that, that is well, shown to be at some, shown like a decade ago to be activated by estrogen. But other than that, the ability of other steroid hormones to activate G protein pathways has been largely mysterious. But now Jin Pong's discovery says, well, you know, hey, maybe, maybe a lot of adhesion GPCRs can be activated by small molecules or, and, and specifically by steroids. And so, yeah, because we, we, we and others have been mostly in the mindset of like the, that the ligands for adhesion GPCRs adhesion GPCRs are mostly large adhesive ligands, but, but uh, Jin Pong's work shows, hmm, you know, maybe, this, maybe they do have adhesive ligands, but they also have some small molecule ligands also. And so there's certainly, uh, you know, with, with N-termini that large, there certainly is room for multiple ligands to bind. And it looks like that, that, that may be the case for many of the uh, adhesion GPCRs. I find it fascinating um, when, when, these new discoveries are being made because it you always feel like okay we we've know we've we know enough now we mm -hmm. we can take it to the next step and there's always something new that comes up and i feel like you had mentioned that adhesion gpcrs have very long terminis and they can be very tissue specific when it comes to their expression and in my mind those two things together and the fact that they're specific and they're a little bit cryptic and having removing that terminus completely uh activates the receptor. I think mm -hmm. it's it's just the right clues that show that, yes, it is a really nice way to modulate the receptors in, mm -hmm. in the context of diseases. Mm -hmm. And ho hormones, I mean, they do everything. I tell people, no, I tell non-GPCR fans, you know, GPCRs control everything. No matter what you do, no matter what disease you're talking about, or no matter what event you're talking about, there is some always some GPCR or some group of GPCR that is involved in, in that event. Absolutely. And I find it so fascinating that GPCRs, you know, of course, they're, they have been throughout history the last you know, many, many decades. They've been the greatest drug targets. And, and you, I certainly thought, you know, like, so let's say back in the 90s when I, when I was in Bob's lab, I thought as we get into the 2000s and into the 21st century, that the, the percentage of drugs out there that were developed against GPCRs versus other, versus other targets would decrease because it's certainly there's this whole other classes of proteins that could be great drug targets. And you would think as, as we learn more about these other, other um, drug targets and other classes of proteins, that drug, they, they would have great drugs too. And, you, and you'd have a lower and lower fraction because I think back in the 90s, it was very common. People would often say, oh yeah, like 30%, you know, 30 to 40% of you know, drugs that are out there on the market uh, target GPCRs, right? And so I always thought, thought that, that that number would, would decrease 
over the years. But actually, ironically and amazingly, in recent years, that number is actually increasing. Yeah. <laughs> because you, you have the, just in the last few years, right, you have like um, the orexin receptor antagonists, you know, yeah. for treating sleep, and you have the GLP-1 agonists for treating diabetes, yeah. and you have so many other great drugs that have been approved in just the last few years yeah. that, that target GPCRs and are doing new and amazing things. And so, so, so amazingly, the, uh, the percentage of, of drugs that act on GPCRs is actually going up, <laughs> not going down. So, so that shows that GPCRs continue to be, you know, just a, a, a premier class of drug targets. And there's still so many orphans out there that we know very little about. And that, you know, so that all, all the adhesion GPCRs are, are right for, for drugging and, and, and for developing therapeutics against. It's a, it's a pretty large subfamily. Um, so I, I think there's a lot more in the coming decades. I think there's a lot more great drugs to come that will target GPCRs. Um, and we certainly we are, we're, we're by no means done in, you know, in uh, developing great therapeutics against this family of proteins. I think we're not, not only not, not done yet, I do, for with developing therapeutics against GPCRs, I think we're not done yet understanding the intricacies of the different receptor families of the receptors. The orphan receptors are a class that you know we we think they're GPCRs. We, we they look like GPCRs, but we don't know which ligands, which natural ligands they might bind. And we're at the at the verge of discovering what type of diseases, what type of uh, physiological events they're involved in. And I think. What one key to getting to that understanding is moving the technologies and the the techniques that we have currently into the next era where we can better measure receptor function and the consequences of receptor activation. And with that, my next question is, what do you think is missing from the field when it comes to technology and tools and initiatives to better characterize adhesion receptors, for example? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think... Um, my hope is that the next great advance will come in the area of in silico screening, right? The idea that as we get more and more crystal structures and more and more cryo-EM structures, that we'll, we'll, we'll know more and more about exactly how drugs are binding to, to GPCRs. And then based on that information that we'll get from dozens or hundreds of different, you know, drug receptor interactions, we'll, we can refine our, our models, our computational models to predict. So, so then when you're studying an orphan GPCR that looks like it could be a great drug target, but you, you don't know any drugs that bind to it. Rather than having to having to do expensive and time-consuming screens, like 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 in the real world where you're screening like 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 thousands or, or millions of compounds, that you you can you can look at the structure and just in silico like predict you know computationally predict what drugs are going to bind bind to, to that to that structure. I think that that would be, would be very powerful because it would just save a huge amount of time and effort to be able to, to make predict make make more. Obviously, people are trying to do that now, but Many of the predictions are, are not that accurate because we, we just we just lack the knowledge and lack the, the base of the base of knowledge about about GPCR drug interactions. So, but but as we as as we as you know, every month as more and more <laughs> papers are published and more structures are, are out there, yeah, I think it's going to get better and better and better. And hopefully, in the next decade, you know, we'll we'll have you know something by by 2030, we'll have just you know really accurate uh, prediction algorithms. That can really predict what, what kind of drugs are are going to fit in, in different binding crevices, and I think that would just be a, a quantum leap forward and allow us to really accelerate uh, drug discovery. You know, toward not only GPCRs but but really really for, for all drug targets. But but that, that that to me is one of the most most exciting you know current directions that, that I think it's going to just just explode and become you know a, a dominant way of discovering drugs um, in the next decade or two. I think it. I think it's definitely one one exciting novel way of lo novel, not so novel, looking at uh, at receptor and drug interactions using computational biology, and to the next level would be using machine learning and to predict. You know, not For only sure. show that you the molecule binds a certain receptor or a certain subtype of receptor or a receptor in in a specific conformation, but also mm -hmm. being able to take it take that information and use it uh, in machine learning studies and then predict what will happen or what might happen uh, in the future with that interaction and how it will influence uh, cellular function, definitely. Yeah, so, so many companies these days that are, are just starting up are, are using some kind of AI technology, right? Yeah. So, you know, which I, I think is incredibly exciting because when you look, for example, what's happened in the chess world, obviously these days we have, uh, you know, no, no human can be at the top computers, right, in, in yeah. chess. but. But if you have a, a human working with 
a machine, right? Like, like the humans and machines working together, then that that team can beat any machine or beat any individual human, even like even like even like the top grandmaster. So, so that shows that when when humans and machines collaborate, right, that that's really really powerful because they bring different strengths, right, to to analyzing any any kind of question, whether it be chess or, or drug discovery. And so I think I think what's happened in, in the chess world will be exactly the same in the drug discovery world. That basically when you have humans working together with machines and AI, that that's going to be incredibly powerful for drug discovery, and it's going to result in just like a quantum leap and a, into just a colossal step forward beyond where we are now in, in terms of the, the pace of drug discovery and the kind of really you know novel insights that we'll have. So, this, so it's not that machines and AI are not going to replace the humans, but. but they're, they're going, to, going to collaborate with humans. Human, the humans and AI working together are going to be like an unbeatable combination, just like they are right now in the chess world. I think so too. I think it. Uh, I think when, whenever you're looking at machine learning or AI, the input of the data is very important. The quality of the data that you input in in in, in the system is very important, and it takes humans to mm-hmm. decide what data do you input in the system. Mm-hmm in order to to get your answer. And I think the ability of using machine learning and computational biology to analyze a large uh, amount of data, a large number of, of you know, results and experiments from different type of, of systems is crucial. No one human or group of humans can do the work of, of a computer when it comes mm-hmm. to large, large amounts of data. Totally and then the next, well, actually, we kind of answered that question, but I ask this from everyone. Uh, do you think GPCRs are still good drug targets? Well, you, you know they are. <laughs> I, I, I think, I, I think, I think so. I think they they all are. What do you think the next, um, you know, hot class of GPCRs might be when it comes to to new drugs? I'm gonna have to say the adhesions. Oh, okay. Got to go with the adhesion family because uh, you know for the reasons I mentioned, so many of them are human disease genes, right? And, and so that, that shows that the, the impact that they can have right, on, uh, on human physiology. Um, and now that we're making inroads and discovering the first small molecules, I think it's definitely a, a, a subfamily of, of, of GPCRs that you're gonna see really take off in terms of the number of drugs being developed. You mentioned that uh, one of these additional receptors, the BIA mm-hmm. receptor yeah. one, uh, when, when um, when it's mutated, it does um, induce some uh, disease, some type of disease, some brain-related diseases. What other diseases are, are adhesion receptors involved in? Yeah, so the, so GBR fifty six right mutations cause a, a, a neurological disorder as shown by by Shen Piao. But my lab has described for 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 Bay two, there's, there's a mutation that also is associated with with a neurodegenerative condition. It's kind of rare, but uh, but it's still there are a few examples of it uh, out there. Um, mutations in uh, VLGR1, which has the great name of the, the very large G-protein coupled receptor. <laughs> so, so that's one that's found in the, in the photoreceptors and also in the, in the, in the cochlea uh, in the ears. Um, that, that, that causes a, 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 mutations in VLGR1 cause a kind of deafness that also is associated with seizures and, and, and visual problems. And so that's, that certainly is a very important disease gene. Um, and then the, there are there are a number of others that have been linked in, in genetic studies, for example, to to, to ADHD, to, to schizophrenia, and, and to some some other other um, conditions of it and that are certainly of, of interest in terms of trying to trying to trying to develop therapeutics. And these these mutations are usually single mutations, or these deletions, or what kind of mutations are? Yeah, it's both. But there's quite, there's a lot of them that, that are that are are SNPs and are are single you know single point mutations that are, are causing pathology. And um, can you tell us how these were first discovered? Was there an effort to look for GPCR or was it just an effort to look for any, any mutations? Yeah, for, for example, with, with Shen Piao, she, she and Chris Wallace were just interested in trying to um, understand this disorder, which is called BFPP, that's bilateral frontal, frontal parietal polymicrogyria, which is like a, pro- a problem of the, of, of the wiring of the, of the cerebral cortex. Um, and they were just doing the, doing the basic genetics on it, trying to, they had, had no idea if it was a GPCR or something else, and it turned out to be an adhesion G- GPCR. So, so quite a few of these human diseases linked to the adhesion GPCRs that have been just found in a totally unbiased way, just trying to do the genetics on some interesting disorder, um, and then finding, oh, it, it's, it's a GPCR that, that is, uh, is causing it. What type of uh, molecule would we be looking for if you were to modulate some of these mutations in general? Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it depends. Um, the mutation we found in Bay 2 that leads to this uh, neurodegenerative condition, it, we showed uh, by ex expressing that mutated receptor in culture cells showed that it's massively overactive relative to the wild relative to the wild-type receptor. So in that case, obviously, you'd want some kind of um, antagonist or, or more likely an inverse agonist, right, that could bind to the mutant receptor and tone it down, or, or maybe like a negative L-seg modulator that, that, that would just dampen down the activity of that, of that overactive receptor. And of course, this is hardly a unique idea, right, that overactive GPCRs, you know, cause disease because that was, you know, there's been so many examples of that over the years that actually that, that, that subfield sort of began... And we, this, this is mentioned briefly in, in the book and in, in, in the Lefkowitz memoir, but back in the early 90s, you know, Susanna Katechia in the Lefkowitz lab was just doing some, some fun and basic studies on the alpha-1 receptors, right, and showing that, like, you know, she, she, I think she was trying to map the, the region where, where they're G-protein coupled. And so she was making mutations on, like, the third cytoplasmic loop. And, and for, for one particular residue, she found that any residue she changed it to would, would massively increase, right, the agonist independent signaling of the receptor, and so that then this led to, to the idea that, oh, that maybe maybe the alpha-1 receptor and maybe many GPCRs, they're tuned to have low activity, right, in the absence of agonists um, and tuned to have and then high activity in, in, in the presence of agonists. Uh, and so many mutations then throw the, throw the receptor out of tune and make it have signaling activity even in the absence of agonists when, when they're not supposed to be active. Um, and and, and so, so, so that was sort of a just basic research is sort of an interesting laboratory phenomenon that Susanna and colleagues showed in the early 90s. But then subsequently, all through the 90s, all through the early 2000s, then lab after lab after lab began reporting, oh, that this disease or that disease is caused by imitation to a GPCR that causes constituents of activity, right? That, that you have this, this agonist and independent, you know, uncontrolled activity of a receptor that, that's causing pathology. Um, and so that turned out that that work from, from Susanna Katechia in the Lefkowitz lab it had a lot of relevance, right, to human disease, even though that was, that was far from Susanna's mind at that time. She's just doing basic research. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but then it turned out to be very relevant to a lot, a lot of diseases. And certainly our work on Bay 2, uh, this member of the adhesion family, is certainly re relates back to that, 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 that concept. And is it in that same vein of research that, you know, if, when you have mutations that cause consistent of overactivity, that's, you know, that's usually not good and it's, it's going to cause disease in, in many cases. Uh, when it comes to this, this uh, particular adhesion receptor, this Bay 2, you mentioned that, uh, so you have, you have this single mutation that causes the receptor to become constitutively active when relative to a deletion of the N-terminus of Bay 2, how does that mm -hmm. constitutive activity look like? Mm -hmm. Whenever you have the, the wild type versus mutant versus truncated receptor, right. yeah, the the mutation in question for Bay two is um, found on the on the C terminus, and so so that really, really gets back to as you know <laughs> the subject near and dear to my heart, <laughs> why the C terminus is so important for regulating GPCRs, right? So obviously we've been very interested in understanding what protein protein interaction is disrupted or enhanced or modulated by these mutations on the, on the Bay-2C terminus that are causing overactivity and that, that are linked to disease. And so we've been very interested in, in trying to characterize, you know, what, what exactly is, is changing and how those are functionally changing the receptor. And so it really gets back to the things I was working on even back in the 90s in, in the Lefkowitz lab in terms of C-terminal regulation of, of GPCRs. How does that constitutive activity of that mutated C-terminal uh, receptor compare it to the potential constitutive yeah. activity of a truncated one? Yeah, it looks the same as far as we can tell. Wow. Uh, I don't know that it biases the receptor in any way, at least not that we've been able to see. Of course, it's probably, when, you, when you're studying bias, you, you, you know, you're know you a little bit constrained by the assays that you're doing. And yeah. maybe, maybe we haven't looked at the right pathway. But as far as we can tell, we're not causing bias, but it's just it's just causing an increase in the same pathway that normally um, is, is active by, you know, by the natural mechanism of activation for that receptor. Mm -hmm. And is it coupled, coupled to G1213 as? So, so that one is kind of strange. It couples actually best uh, in our hands to uh, G alpha Z, which okay. is a, a, a less uh, commonly studied <laughs> member of the G protein family, but, but Bay 2, at, at least, at least in hex cells and several other cult cultured cells that we've studied, it couples very well to, to GZ and, and activates some, some, path some pathways that are down downstream of that. 
It's so interesting because whenever you go out of the realm of GI and GS, mm -hmm. then, right. then everything gets so much more complicated because for a long time, there were no good assays to quantify the activation of, of the other G protein. Yeah, exactly. And so that, yeah, it, 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 it is interesting to, to get away from the, the, the classical GS or GQ or GI signaling, but there's certainly a, a lot of other G proteins out there and certainly certain yep. GPCRs are, are, are tuned to, you know, to optimally interact with all different members of the, of the, of the family. I think that's, that's one of, uh, one of the, the things I love about GPCRs. It's not only the diversity of the ligands, the diversity of the receptor, but also mm -hmm. their, the ability of receptors to couple to different G proteins, depending on, on the cellular environment and to the tissue specificity, I think it's just, it's just amazing. Mm. It's just fantastic. Um, we've talked a little bit about, you know, your advice to young scientists when it comes to choosing their path, to choosing their question that they want to um, work on. Do you have any other advice to junior scientists who are in the field or even outside the field who want to make an impact in the science world? Yeah, I think, you know, I would say work on important problems. You know, I think that there's a lot of important problems out there. There's also a lot of trivial problems and just very detail-oriented things. And, and in my experience, you know, the, uh, the trivial problems aren't necessarily any easier to solve than, than the really important problems, right? There's a, lot, there's a lot of trivial problems that are really hard to solve. And you, you can spend months or years of your career working on something that's fairly, fairly trivial. So if, if you're going to invest the time and effort, right, in a project, in some long-term project, at least it should be something that, that that's really important. And so I, I think sometimes people are in the mindset that like, oh, the important problems are probably really hard. And so I'll work on something that's a little more peripheral. And it's a little easier. But but in, in reality, uh, th there's no connection between the importance of a problem and how easy it is to solve. But there's a lot of, you know, pretty important questions out there that would be relatively easy to solve if, if you happen to get on, get on the right path. And conversely, as I said, there's a lot, a lot of trivial problems that are really, really hard to solve and yeah. can take you years. And, and the payoff is not, is not very high. And so I think I think problem selection is very important for young scientists, and but but definitely don't be afraid to, to tackle the the important problems because if you're going to invest the time, make make it for make it for something that's big and important. You know, how would you differentiate an important problem from from a trivial one? Yeah, it, it's a great question, and I just think that you can gauge that both on your own level of interest, um, the level of interest of other scientists. Um, you know, if you, when you talk about it with scientists at meetings, right, you can get a sense in the field for what are the big questions that people are finding very exciting and interesting and important. Um, and, and also, you know, just in terms of like the disease relevance also, you know, so, so, so you want to work on something that, that it, it has some potential, right, the connection to, to disease or pathology or, or drug development. It's always nice if there's a potential, it doesn't have to be like a direct, but at least a a potential, you know, clinical angle that you might have in mind. I think that 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 helps to steer you steer you in the direction of uh, some questions that, that are big and important and will be very interesting to to, to many folks in the field. With, and with GPCRs, it's not difficult to make that connection between some yeah. clinical um, absolutely phenotype. Definitely. Mm -hmm. We've talked about, um, you know, working you working on the importance of the C terminal. Um, tale of, of GPCRs, were there any, at any point in your career, not only while in the Bob left, in Bob's lab, where you discovered something or you learned something that you could qualify as an aha moment? Yeah, I think that the, uh, for example, the uh, work I described earlier on the adhesion GPCRs of when we were, we removed the N-terminus thinking that that would kill the activity of the receptor and actually found that that massively increased the activity. That that's a really, that was for us was certainly a big aha moment. Um, and I think that's very exciting. You know, it should be exciting for any scientist when you do an experiment expecting one result and you get the exact opposite. Like, like usually that tells you that you're pointed in, in the right direction <laughs> and you should further explore that and go that way. Because, because if you're surprised by the result of your own experiment, then, then probably other scientists will also be surprised, right? And that always makes for good storytelling because then when you write the paper, you can say, so we, we did this experiment expecting X, you know, but we actually got the exact opposite Right, that, that that that's like good narrative storytelling, right? Because it's very surprising. Since then, you want to do further work to figure out what why it is that you got the opposite of, of what you were expecting. Yeah. And so, I think that that's a, that is a, again in terms of it, it relates back to your question about how do you tell important problems. You know, if you're doing if you're doing experiments and you get the exact opposite of what you expect on some really um, key experiment, then it tells you that maybe you're 
get you're honing in on honing in on an important yeah. question and an important line of research because you, because if something's really surprising to you, it'll be surprising and very interesting and, and important to others. It's 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 a little bit like. Uh googling something and you're you're in google and then google <laughs> finishes your your sentence and then you realize actually i'm not the only one looking at to an answer to answer that particular question absolutely and have you before before you you if if there are any other aha moments before we go to those have you ever truncated the c-terminal part of adhesion receptors what happens then yeah it's a, it's a great question and we, we certainly have done some studies like that on some of the adhesions that we're studying, for example, to try to map the interactions with um, arrestins and other um, regulatory proteins of interest that we know bind. And so it just, it varies from receptor to receptor, but because it depends on, on what, you know, um, what interaction you're, you're perturbing with, with certain truncations. And so, and there are certainly some, you know, human diseases that, that, that have been linked to, you asked me earlier about, about the mutations to these yeah. GPs. At least some of them are, are premature stop codons where you, where you lose a chunk of the C-terminus. And so presumably you're losing some very physiologically important interactions that are going on uh, on, on that C-terminus. And so, so, so the answer is basically that it varies a lot depending on the subtype, mm -hmm. but the C-termini of adhesion GPCRs, just like for other subfamilies, are certainly very important for their regulation. And, and the, the main difference with adhesions is that, is that for many of them, they have quite large C-termini. They have, they have huge extracellular N-termini, but also large um, cytoplasmic C-termini and a lot of opportunity for regulation there. Um, and yeah. Which, which is most likely needed considering that the, the, the imp considering the importance of the, of the N-terminus mm -hmm. region of, of adhesion receptors. Mm -hmm. So basically yeah. your intuition in the beginning when you got to Bob's lab about let's see what the C-termini do. That's right. It's it's still something that needs to it's, be. It's been born out. <laughs> <laughs> and see that that was that was the uh, the typical good important problem to go after. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the mm -hmm. day it was something that people were not interested in back in back then. But then you you made right. a point to show off to show that the C-terminus of a GPCR is actually important to regulate its mm -hmm. signaling. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so we, we went through the aha moments and my last question to you is, um, do you, how do you, no, not how do you, but if you have any job opportunities, any positions open in your lab, how do you usually advertise and how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So any students out there are, are interested, just send me a, uh, an email. I certainly have some, some openings coming up because right now I have a, postdoc who will be leaving shortly to take a faculty position and a grad student who's graduating and an undergrad who just graduated. Um, and so, you know, I have some, some folks who are either have just left or are, are leaving in the, in the next month or two. So I certainly have openings. And so, uh, so students can just drop me an email. That's great. And your email address, as well as the link to your LinkedIn profile will be available on our website. So people can read your papers and then, um, you know, choose the problem they're interested in and reach out to you. So, sounds great. And with this, Randy, okay. I want to thank you for your time. Thanks, Amina. It's been a, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. And then uh, hopefully we, we can get back together and, and talk about Bob's next book that you will be co-authoring. <laughs> I would love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our guest as well as our team members, Attila Forrest, Shivani Sajdev, Alexa Juron, and Ines Pinero. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe. Mm -hmm.